You know, I came across an interesting story recently about a guy who had played football in high school, and then he went on to play football in college, and he was pondering entering the draft, going into the NFL. He was halfway decent, but he went to, to work out for the teams and then to watch him and go to the NFL, and, uh, but before the draft began, his scouting report leaked out, and he heard what these people were saying about him, and this is what they said. They said he had a poor build, he was skinny, he lacked great physical stature, he lacked any amount of strength, he lacked mobility, and the ability to avoid the rush. He lacks a really strong arm. He cannot drive the ball downfield. He does not throw a really great spiral. He's a system-type player who can get exposed if forced to ad-lib. He gets knocked down very easily. And so these people were speaking really about what he did not have, what they perceived he did not have within him, which, honestly, a lot of us listen to what people say about what we don't have, and we allow that to be the narrative for our lives. Well, this guy entered the draft anyway. He heard what these people said, but even though he heard what they said, he decided rather to have faith in what he knew he could do. And so he entered the draft, and he didn't go in the first round or the second round or the third round or the fourth round or the fifth round. He went in the sixth round. He was the 199th pick. His name was Tom Brady. He didn't even start his first year, but he started his second year, and they went to the Super Bowl that year. Nobody thought he was any good. Everybody said he was terrible, and he lacked any amount of skill. And now here we are 20 years later, and he's vastly considered to be the greatest to ever play the game. All because he did not listen to those voices. How many of us, if had such public, uh, uh, in a public manner in that, had people say terrible things about you? You're not able to do that. You can't do it. You're horrible. You're horrible. The Cowboys draft a better quarterback than what you are. This is, you're just bad in every meaning of the word. How many of us, had people say that about us, would still want to go and do the thing they're telling us we're bad at? And yet, oftentimes in our own lives, we listen to some of those things people say to us. Some things people said, have said to us 30 years ago still stick in our brains and we can't get it out. And in the darkness of our house, when we're trying to go to sleep, the enemy will bring that back up. And we just keep repeating that phrase over and over and over again. What Tom Brady did, what may, you know, he became what he was because he silenced the noise. Silenced the noise. He had faith in what he could do. And he was able to silence those voices and go out and do what he believed he was made to do. Win more Super Bowls than any other quarterback in history. Well, we're going to see something similar to that today. Silencing the voices. Understanding what faith can do in our lives from John chapter 4 today. So open your Bibles if you, if you brought one to John chapter 4 verse uh, 45 is where we're going to start. Uh, if you want to use the Bible on the rack there in front of you, if you're in the room, it's on page 889. Uh, it'll also be on the screens or if you're watching online, it'll be right below me. You can get it there. John chapter 4. You see, we're, we enter into Jesus's ministry here in John at the end of John chapter 4. Uh, if you were here last week, you saw some of this. Um, he had been in Jerusalem the capital city, uh, doing some miracles down there, worshiping down there, some great things that happened down there. Uh, he had done actually a lot of miracles down there. And he left Jerusalem, 
and he, he was going to Galilee. So Jerusalem is down here in the south. Galilee was up here in the north, and he had to walk through this country in the middle, or this region in the middle called Samaria. And he stopped in Samaria and had a conversation with this woman at the well. He defied all uh, cultural norms. Men weren't supposed to talk to women they weren't related to in public. Rabbis were definitely not supposed to do it, and Jesus did it anyway. Jesus did any, and this wasn't just some regular run-of-the-mill woman here. This is a woman who had a past, a woman who went to the well at the middle of the day because she didn't want to interact with anybody. People were saying all kinds of stuff about her. She, she had issues with what was going on in the past and was probably a little embarrassed about it, and so she went in the middle of the day to get her water. But Jesus struck up a conversation, and Jesus aimed her life in a direction it was not going previously. And so the past that she had, Jesus brought it up in their conversation. Not, he said, it's not something to forget. It's something that can strengthen you for what God has for you to come. Your, path has, your past has no bearing on your future except to make you stronger for what's yet to come. And so Jesus angled everything within this woman's life in that conversation to the moment where she runs back into the Samaritan town and tells people to, about Jesus and brings them to Jesus. People who are probably spreading rumors about her. That, that, that's only in first century, you know, Samaritan small towns. That doesn't happen in 21st century Arkansas small towns. Just back then, people spreading rumors. And so she brings all those rumor spreaders to Jesus. And they have a two-day revival there. They come to know Jesus, all because of this woman's testimony about him. And so that, that's what's going on here in John chapter 4. And Jesus leaves that revival, and he goes up into Galilee. These the people of Samaria genuinely wanted to believe they didn't ask Jesus to do any miracles. They just wanted to know the story of the gospel. And so then Jesus goes up into Galilee in the north. And he gets there, and that's where we arrive here in verse 45. So John chapter 4, verse 45. 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So we see Jesus walking into Galilee. People go crazy. It's a big celebration. Jesus is in town. They, they had gone to the feast in, in Jerusalem. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen all this stuff. They thought it was so great. And so Jesus comes into Galilee. He's here, the miracle work. He's here, and they want Jesus to repeat what he did in Jerusalem. They want to see it again. They want, they want to see the miracles happen. They want to be there. They want miracles to happen in their lives in the exact same way it happened in Jerusalem. And so they welcome Jesus into town or into the region. But Jesus makes a beeline for the city called Cana, which it said he'd already been there before. He did the water into wine at, in Cana at a wedding in Cana. And so he goes to that town. Well, there's a town not so far away. The writer of John gives us here some background info uh, called Capernaum. And there's a guy in that town, a royal official, it calls him. Now, royal officials, usually when, when that phrase was used, the stereotype was royal officials, he, he worked for the government, Royal officials were not very religious. That was their stereotype. So when somebody would say, oh, there's a royal official, a lot that went into that stereotype was, well, they are not very religious. They don't think much about God. And so we don't know the spiritual condition of this man, but that's the stereotype that played into what some people think of him. And so that's probably another reason why John used that word for that reason, to bring up some thoughts as Jesus gets into this. And so this, this royal official is in the city of Capernaum. That's about 15 to 20 miles away from Cana. That's not like he jumps in the car and drives 15 to 20 miles like some of you did today. 
That's walking 15 to 20 miles. This is like a two-day trek, okay? I mean, this is, this is a long time. And so he hears about Jesus coming. Look at verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this man hears Jesus is nearby, the miracle man, the guy who did stuff in Jerusalem. He may have been in Jerusalem. He may have seen some of the miracles himself. And so he hears that the miracle man's there. He knows his son is at the point of death, about to die, very, very sick. And so he makes a beeline for Capernaum, or for Cana from Capernaum, 15, 20 miles. And he starts walking there, getting, trying to speed walk, get there as quickly as he possibly can. And he approaches Jesus and says, my son is at the point of death. I need you to come and heal him. I saw you. I heard about you in Jerusalem. You would go and you would heal all those people. You would go and you would heal people and do all those things. I need you to come and do that for me. It's just right down the road, 15, 20 miles. We can be there in a day and a half. Let's go right now. You can come just to heal my son. Do that for me. And so this man asked Jesus of this, or asked this of Jesus. Will you come? Look at verse 48. And Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you do not believe. Not. If you're this man, and you've just come to Jesus and begged him to heal your son, and Jesus says that, it seemed a little harsh. It seemed like he's kind of slapping the guy down. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Like, you need to come with belief first, and then I'll heal whatever you've got to heal going on there. But when Jesus says this, he's not necessarily talking about the man specifically. He's talking about the people in general. Because the you in that phrase, Jesus says there, is plural. He's not saying just you, the man. He's saying you as a people. Because remember, they welcomed him into the Galilean region. They wanted him to do more miracles, just like he'd already done. This guy comes, and he asks Jesus, well, I want you to come in the same way you went in Jerusalem to people, and you touched them. I want you to come to my house, touch my son, heal my son. And Jesus says to the general audience, the crowd, the Galileans, and his disciples, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, Jesus isn't speaking harshly to the man. He's pointing something out. He's making a point about an issue here. He's pointing out that generally up until now, the healings that he has done has not really led to belief. The people just wanted the show. They wanted the cool show. They wanted the cool stuff. They wanted to see the miracle, but then they wouldn't believe. And we see that time and again. That's probably why at Easter week when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was so easy for people to start out celebrating him and turn on a dime later on in the week because they didn't really believe. They liked the cool show, but they didn't really believe. And so Jesus is telling everyone who's there to listen, the point is belief. The point of all the healings I've done so far is belief. The point of all of that is, but he wants to point people to the kingdom. Which is why, when, when, like when Jesus fed the 5,000, he didn't feed the 5,000 and then tell them about the kingdom. What it says in the scriptures, he told them about the kingdom and then he fed them. He told them first. It says actually he taught all day. And then, at the end of the day, they were hungry. There's another time when he fed 4,000. That time, he taught them for two or three days before he fed them. Because he wanted to make sure they understood the kingdom first. And so he wants, to under, he wants these people to get it. It's about the kingdom. It's about eternity. It's about heaven. You've you got to understand. He said, I can heal all day long and all this stuff, but if you don't believe, what's the point? It's about eternity. 
I can heal you and you can feel better for a couple of years, but if you're not going to heaven, those couple of years are the best you're ever going to get. You need eternity. And so Jesus is making that point very powerfully here, that it needs to be about belief. And the official, here's what Jesus says. And now I want you to understand as we read what the official's response was, it may not seem like he's getting it until we read the verse after that. But look at verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And so he's like begging Jesus now. Like, you need to come now, Jesus. I saw, you know, you touched the guy's ear and he could hear. You touched the guy's eyes and he could see. You touched the guy's tongue and he could speak. My son is dying. Come and touch him so he can live. Look at what Jesus says in verse 50. So Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. (laughs) What I love about this is the man came with a request to Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is God. So he came with a request to Jesus. So that's a prayer. You come with a request to Jesus. So the man comes with a request to Jesus. Jesus both answers the prayer and doesn't answer the prayer. Because the man wanted Jesus to come and heal his son. Jesus did not come, but he did heal the son. He didn't heal the son in the way the man expected or even in the way the man asked. He just did it. He said, your son will live. Your son will live. And so this man has just been challenged by Jesus to believe without proof. And so the man walks away doing just that. It says he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. The the word was planted within him. He believed it and he walked on his way. It's happened. Jesus said it. But I want to point out something else about that verse. When he says, go, your son will live. That's future tense, right? Will live. But actually, in the original language, the way it's spoken, it's present tense. Jesus says, literally, your son is alive. Or, to put it another way, your son is alive in perfect health. He's not sick anymore. He's alive. At this very second, your son is alive. I declare it. That's a word planted in your heart. Take the word and go on. And the man did. He took the word and he walked on. So the word the man received was a word of life. Your son is alive and perfectly healthy. Look at verse 51. So the man was going down. His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Again, that's was recovering. You can say it's past tense. You can say it's imperfect tense, whatever you want to say. But that's also, in the original language, the exact same phrasing Jesus has used. In the original language, it's present tense there. The servants come to him and say the exact same words Jesus just said. Your son is perfectly alive. Your son is alive and perfectly healthy. And so this man hears this. The belief he had, the word that was planted in his heart that he had, it begins to stir something up within him that just changes everything. Have you ever prayed something so demonstrably audacious and then it happened and you couldn't believe that it happened? You ever done that, anybody? You're like, I can't believe Jesus answered that prayer. Even though you prayed and you thought you prayed in full belief, but then it happened, you're like, whoa, prayer works. Guys, I've seen it. I've been in hospital rooms and prayed. Doctor saying, this person's gonna die. We prayed for absolute healing, walked out. An hour later, you get a phone call. Hey, the cancer's gone. I don't know how that happened. Hey, there, I remember the, distinctly this one time, I was praying over somebody in a hospital room. The doctor said the, hour's gonna, uh, the, the surgery's gonna take eight hours we're going to open her up. It's going to be extremely complicated, and we don't really know if she's going to live. And so I prayed. I, remember, I, st- I can go right back there, standing in the room with this. I was a youth minister with the girl, her dad, and I prayed. 
uh, that it would be incredibly fast, that the doctor would open her up, and all that stuff that he saw in the x-ray would not be there. I get a phone call 45 minutes later. Hey, the surgery's done. Are you kidding me? Sir, what do you mean surgery's done? Because everything you prayed happened. Praise God. I hung up the phone, and I had that same reaction I just said a minute ago. I thought, I can't believe that happened. And I'm a minister. I can't believe it. It, it worked. But how often do we do that? When, when we, something we pray happens, and we're like flabbergasted. Well, here's this man. Gets this word from Jesus, word of life for his son. And these guys come from his house and use the exact same words Jesus uses. And I can just picture the man, like his eyes get big and his mouth drops. Wait, what did you just say? Say, say that again. No, say it the way you said it, like the exact, say it. And they say it, and, he's, and look what he says. Uh, where were we? Verse 52. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. That's 1 p.m. So that's his question. Wait, 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 guys, 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 whoa, whoa. Tell me, when did the fever go? Like, when did he get better? Like, exact time. And so they say, about the seventh hour. That's about 1 p.m. Verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. Your son is alive. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so this man, the belief that he had is now like solidified within him. It's become something incredible. What was belief is now knowledge. He said he knew it. He knew it. This is, I know. That was when Jesus said it. And everything changes. He takes that word that was planted within him to his family as a testimony. And as that testimony is planted within his family, it says there in that verse, verse 53, they believed and salvation entered their house. The word planted within the man was a testimony to his family. And sometimes you, you may get a word that's planted in you, and a word isn't simply planted in you just to sit there, just to be there, just to exist, that you received it and you just, you know, munch on it for a while and you're good to go. No, a word is planted to grow. A word is planted to grow. Not just sit, not just be, but grow. The word of salvation is planted within you to grow, to be nurtured, to increase your faith. The word is planted to grow. And a word grows to spread. This man received this word. It grew within him when he received that knowledge of what Jesus had done for him. And then he spread that word when he got home. A word is given to grow. And a word grows to spread, to be handed out to anybody and everybody. And this word to the man, this word of life to the man was given to his family. This word that he had. But this word that was planted within him that grew and then was spread began with really expectation the man had for what he wanted Jesus to do. He had come to Jesus with a plan of what he wanted Jesus to do. Jesus, I want you to come. I want you to touch him. I want you to heal him. That's what I saw you do all those other times. Don't you do it again. Do exactly what you did before. Do it again. Don't vary anything. Don't change. Use the exact same words. Just put my son's name in there. Because it worked when you did that before. I want you to do it the exact same way this time so I can be sure that it's going to work. The man had come to Jesus, and, and he wanted his son healed, just like Jesus had gone and done to so many others. 
He wanted Jesus to heal him. He wanted Jesus to repeat that same pattern that he had seen before. Repeat the pattern, Jesus, so, so that my son can be healed. And God, I mean, maybe this isn't how you operate, but I know in my own mind this is how I function sometimes. And in conversations with people, I know this is how some of you, because I've had this conversation with some of you before, that we like patterns. We like something that's reproducible. We like if we get a certain result one time, well, we know if we do the exact same thing, the next time we should get the same result. And so we like a system. We like a process so we can get the same result almost to the point where we can turn off that part of our brain because we know it's repeatable. And we can go on to something else. We can just set that on autopilot and let it function and, and, and do it the same way, and then we can go on and do the next thing. And, and a lot of times we expect this of God. We expect, I mean, we expect it of God. But when you really think about God, C.S. Lewis said he never likes to do the same thing the same way twice. I mean, God's creative. God created the rhinoceros and the giraffe and the mosquito, which we need to ask him about. He created all these things, and they look vastly different because he's creative. Look around the room. He's very creative. None of you people look the same. None of you. Thank goodness. I mean, I'm looking at you. Thank goodness. None of us are the same. He's creative. He doesn't do the same thing the same way twice. He does it different. But we like patterns. We like something that's reproducible. We want the same as it was. Maybe we prayed something in a certain way with, 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 with specific words. And so we want to use those specific words next time because we want God to do what he did last time. So we, we try to use the same words so that, you know, Maybe it's magic words. We try to use the words that he did. We try to put, okay, well, I was in this position, and I was like this, and I used those words, and I had this song playing, and because and, that song puts me in the spirit mood, and, and we, we go through the whole motions, and we say it, and it doesn't happen like it was before because when a pattern develops, what we do subconsciously is we end up trusting the pattern instead of Jesus. We end up trusting the process instead of Jesus, trusting the system instead of Jesus. The man wanted Jesus to come and do what Jesus had already done. But what Jesus did was something he had not done. He healed his son from a distance. He didn't make any motions. He didn't touch the guy. There was one time Jesus healed, what was it, a guy's eye uh, by touching him. Another time he healed a guy's ear by, by just saying it. Another time he healed a guy's ear by spitting on his finger and sticking his finger in the guy's ear. Another time he spit on his finger and touched the guy's tongue. Another time he, he uh, uh, touched a leper, which you did not do because you would get leprosy, and he healed the guy. Jesus healed people in vastly different ways, vastly different ways. And so Jesus heals this time from a distance, like 20 miles. He just said it, and it happened. And so the man wanted Jesus to come, but Jesus didn't come. Faith follows Jesus, not a pattern. Faith follows Jesus and not a pattern. This doesn't mean that you should go out and analyze every single one of your prayers from now on. I know some of you are very analytical, and you're like, okay, I need to make sure I, okay, I'm hearing what the preacher's saying. I need to make sure I don't repeat those exact same words so that I have faith in Jesus and not the process. But when you start to overthink it, then you start having faith in the new process instead of the old process. You just need to have faith in Jesus and not worry about it. Just have faith in Jesus. He can take care of it. Have faith that Jesus will handle it. Don't have faith in the pattern. Don't have faith in the process. Don't have faith in a system. Have faith in Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. Let's say 21st century America. Don't have faith in the government. Have faith in Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. 
and the world's going to change. Your world's going to change. You have faith in people, people are going to let you down. People are sinners. They are. You're going to let people down. You're a sinner. That may be headline news to you, but you are. You're not perfect. Don't nudge the person next to you. I saw some of you were flinching. Don't nudge the person next to you. You're not perfect. You're not. Have faith in Jesus. Jesus may bring people into your life who can change your life, but it's Jesus who does it, not the person. In the same way, Paul speaks of this. In the same way, somebody may do something to us that's offensive. Somebody may do something to us that's outright opposition. Somebody may do something to you that's outright evil. But our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's powers, principalities, spiritual authorities. That's the enemy. The person who did the thing needs Jesus just as much as you who had the thing done to you. You say, well, they're my enemy, man. mm, mm. I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to say I'll be happy when they go to hell, but that's what you're thinking. Everybody needs Jesus, irregardless of where they are in their spiritual journey. Everybody needs Jesus. And Jesus speaks to this man and, and meets this man where he is. And he heals his son, even though the man had faith in a pattern. The man walked away from his encounter with Jesus, his experience with Jesus, no longer having faith in the pattern, but now he had faith in the word Jesus spoke. He had faith in Jesus, who is the word, John chapter 1. The word was with God, and the word was God in the beginning. And so the man has faith in Jesus. And now I want you to point out the, the, the actions that the man did in that passage. He did three things. In verse 47, it said the man heard. He heard that Jesus was coming. In verse 50, it says the man believed Jesus. And then in verse 53, it says that the man knew. He knew what Jesus had said is true. He heard, he believed, he knew. It's a progression. He heard, he believed, he knew. It's his faith progression. We're witnessing in that passage his faith growth develop in front of our very eyes. In a passage of Scripture, honestly, many of us would read and gloss over because it's not headlines. It's not walking on water. It's not feeding the 5,000. It's not raising the dead. It's a guy coming and begging for his son who's sick. Son's not dead. He's just sick. But it is headline news because it is this man's faith increasing to an exponential amount and his whole household coming to belief as a result of Jesus' intervention in this man's life. This faith progression, hearing, believing, knowing. We see his faith grow up before our very eyes. Faith, faith to which the man was blind to begin with. He knew something was there but didn't know quite what it was. He knew something was there but wasn't quite ready until his encounter with Jesus and everything changed and his faith instantly became something that it was not the moment before. This is in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. The man went to Jesus not knowing how he was going to heal his son. He didn't know it. He didn't see it. He didn't anticipate it. He didn't see it. Even when Jesus spoke the words, your son is alive and perfectly healthy. 
He didn't see his son get healed, but he walked away believing that it had happened. So that's what faith is. It is the assurance of things hoped for, things yet to come, things in the future, the assurance, the proof that they are coming. Faith brings close what is far away. Faith uh, experiences the future now. Faith brings the, the distant into focus. And in the second half of that verse, faith is the conviction of things not seen. That word literally means proof. Faith is the proof of things that you don't see. You say, okay, that sounds great and everything, but really try to dial down in your brain. What does that mean? Faith is the proof of what I can't see. There was one guy I read illustrated it this way, uh, that faith proves what you can't see in the same way that eyesight proves what is already visible. Just because my eyes are closed and I can't see this table in front of me, that doesn't mean the table's not there. When I open my eyes, I can see it, and that proves what is there, even though I can't see it. Even though I can't see it with my eyes closed, it's still there. I might could feel it, kind of feel around, okay, I can get an idea of what's going on, but I can't really understand the fullness of it until I open my eyes and I see it. And, and what the author of Hebrews is telling us, and what we saw the man and his faith progression does, is faith opens our eyes spiritually so we can see what we could not see before. We can see God move in people's lives that we may not have seen before. We can see what God can do in the life of somebody else that we could not see before. Faith allows us to see grace and mercy that needs to be offered from our hearts in ways that if our eyes are closed spiritually, we don't do that. We don't offer grace and mercy by default. We don't offer kindness by default. By default, we say an eye for an eye. By default, we say people made their choices. That's our default. Faith offers grace. Faith offers love. Faith offers mercy. Faith offers help. That's what faith does. That is the faith progression. So faith, faith removes the blinders that have been placed on our spiritual eyes by sin. Faith removes the blinders and allows us to see what God sees. Allows us to see what is there even though we can't see it. Allows us to experience something that only God can see. You see, here's the idea. I've got my mask here. When we're born into this world, we're born not seeing. Because we're born into a world of sin. And what sin does is it blocks our spiritual vision. It keeps us from seeing. And so it's like we have a blinder on. And we can't see anything that's around us. I can't see you. I can't see this table, I can't see my notes, I can't see the Bible, I can't see the timer, I can't see any of it. But that doesn't mean it's not there, it just means I can't see it. But then when I begin to have faith, and faith introduces me to Jesus, faith removes the blinders from my eyes, and I can see what's there, what was there the whole time. But you got to notice, the thing that was blinding me is still in my hand, it's still there. And it's not removed from my hand until I'm removed from this sinful world. So because it's still in my possession, that means there's sometimes, even though I had faith to remove it, there may be times that I put it back on. There may be times that I put the blinders back on. That I put them on myself. There may be times that I put it back on and then I go to a place where I can't see what's really happening. I can't see what's really there because I've allowed something to block my vision. I've allowed something to block my spiritual eyes. I've allowed something to block my faith. 
And I may not even have realized I put it back on. And I've grown so accustomed to it over the years that to me it just seems like normal life. And so even though all this stuff is here, I take its description as it has been described to me by other people who are around me. And so the world that I see with my blinders on is a world that I only see through other people's description. And so they describe the table and say, okay, well, that's how the table is because I'm hearing the way they're telling me the table is. Or they're telling me about my life, about how I appear, and I only see it through what they describe and how they tell me my life is or my life situation is. But the truth of the matter is, what I don't realize in the, in the blindness of myself is they're blind too. And they're trying to describe something they can't see. But I have absolute permission through faith in Jesus to take the blinders off and see everything as it is and realize the people who were telling me the way my life is is not how it is. They were describing something that they were trying to see through their blindness, and they couldn't. And we do this in our lives. We look at politics through the lives of other people and not Jesus. We look at a health situation through the, lives of, through the words of other people and not through Jesus. We look at our finances through the eyes and description of other people and not through Jesus. We look at our career situation through what other people tell us it needs to be and how it should function. And the American dream has to be this. And we look through it uh, through the description of what other people have told us and not through what Jesus speaks to our hearts, not through his word. Our own, our own experience, what people tell us about our past, some label they've placed on us, we look at our lives through what they say and not through what Jesus says. And we start to live as though we're blind and, and they're telling us what we need to live and how we need to function and what needs to happen. But we don't realize they're blind and they can't really see the way I can see, the way Jesus can see. You say, yeah, but I don't want people to think bad of me. You know, I want everybody to like me. I want things to go smooth in this world. Well, hey, heads up, it's not going to go smooth in this world. Jesus promised that. You live in a sinful, fallen world, John chapter 16. In this world, you will have trouble. He calls it tribulation. That's like trouble amplified. And you're not going to get away from it until you're away from this world. Somebody mentioned to me if, if, uh, it was a couple months ago, I wish we would just get to a time when everything's just calm. I said, well, we will, but that's called heaven. <laughs> We're not there yet. Things aren't going to be calm here. They're not. I mean, what I read earlier in Psalm 91, we can find peace and we can find rest in Jesus, in the Lord, but not in anything this world offers, not in what this world describes, not at all in any of that. Only in Jesus can any of that be possible. Only in Jesus will we find deliverance and opportunity and availability if we make ourselves available to him through faith. And faith removes those blinders that sin places over us, that the world system places over us and says, this is how you should function. This is how you should operate. If you have a past and you've done X, Y, and Z, that means you can't do A, B, C. Well, Jesus says X, Y, and Z can help you do A, B, C. Through the strength of his spirit, it's possible. In Jesus, have faith in Jesus, not faith in the system, not faith in the process, not faith that what somebody else is speaking into your life is even true. They don't know. Jesus does. Have faith in Jesus and him alone. You may not know how it's going to turn out, but that's fine. 
Jesus knows how it's going to turn out. That's why our faith needs to be in him and not in anything else. Only in, he can work through the process. He can work through a system, yes. Absolutely he can. He doesn't need to, but he can. But we need to, when we get into that process, turn off our, our default human practices of putting faith in the process and put the faith in the creator of it all and allow him to guide us through the moment. And then we take those blinders off. See, taking the blinders off means living a life that is enabled by faith through love, living a life through mercy, living a life through grace, living a life through meekness. Somebody said, meekness, man, that's weakness. I ain't going down that road. I ain't going to do none of that meekness, none of this business. Meekness is not weakness at all. That's something that's been taught to us by people who can't see. That's something that's been told to you by people who cannot see. Meekness is restraint. Meekness is a 280-pound, 6-foot-7 linebacker playing tea party with his 4-year-old daughter. It's restraint. It is Jesus, the almighty creator of the universe, putting himself in human form on this earth. That is meekness, restraint. That means you don't have to say everything that pops in your head. Restraint. That means you don't have to type everything that pops into your head. Restraint. Because more often than not, the first thing that pops into our head is a sinful thought because we're sinful beings. Restraint. Meekness, living our lives through that and allow Jesus to be the filter through which we operate in the world, through which we live in this world, through which our words come out in this world. And eventually, it, he will be the filter through which our expression on our face is. And it won't be by default one of these. You know, you see people with masks on today, you just assume everybody's mad at you. For some of you, that's your, you know, your resting face. So you're in heaven right now. I mean, you can just have that scowl on your face and nobody knows if you're smiling or not. What faith does is it removes the blinders and allows us to operate in this life with eyes fully open, able to do what God desires us to do. Live as God desires us to live. So what does faith do? Faith helps you see. Faith helps you see. It enables you to see what's not really there or what is really there, but everyone says it's not. Faith allows you to see the love that God has for people when the world says you should not love that person. Faith allows you to see that the person you are politically opposed to is loved by Jesus. Faith allows you to see that somebody who made a decision four years ago and has been living with the repercussions every single day since then is just as much loved by Jesus today as then. Just as much has a future as you do. That's why they're still here. If they didn't have a future, God would take them. If you didn't have a future, God would take you. You would be done. All your work is over. But if you're still here, that means you've still got something to do for him, for Jesus. In faith, step into what he has for you. And so you have to ask yourself, and I'm going to ask you right now, do you want to see? Are you content with the blinders on your eyes, walking around, listening to how the other people who can't see describe the world around you? Are you ready to see today? Are you ready to take the blinders off and see? 
See your spouse as they are in Jesus. See your kids as they are in Jesus. See the neighbor as they are in Jesus. See the person across at Walmart that you scowl under your mask at because you know something about them that not many people other know, not many other people know. Are you ready to see them as Jesus does, as somebody he loves, who needs just as much grace as you do? You ready to see as Jesus? Do you want to see Maybe you need to see for the first time today and take the blinders off and see the world as Jesus intends you to. Then that means you need to believe in Jesus, that he is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, and he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you want to believe today, you can do that in this moment. And if you're in the room, I'm going to be here, Micah's going to be here, this can be your moment to believe that. Not just know it in your head, but actually believe it and actually remove the blinders. And you can grab one of those candles and pop it here and light it yourself because it's your own spirit that's been lit on fire with the uh, uh, death of Jesus today. If you want to know Jesus today, now's your moment. I'm going to pray. And when I say amen from that prayer, that is your cue to come and talk to us. To say, yes, now's my time. If you're watching online, there's a button right below me that says, I made a decision. You click on that button, it sends an email straight to my email. And I'll call you this afternoon and we'll celebrate with you and pray with you and give you some next steps about what to do next in Christ. You can get baptized. Right up here, we've got a baptistry. It demonstrates for the world you belong to Jesus. You can do that. Show the world that you are new in Jesus. What does faith do for you? It helps you see. Maybe there's an area in your life that you've intentionally kept the blinders on. And it's time to remove them and see everything in that area the way Jesus does. Maybe it is politics. Maybe you keep the blinders on in that area because you like getting mad. Maybe it, it is a particular moment in your past that is a wound in the depths of your heart. And you like keeping the blinders on there because you like that feeling. You like... Maybe you don't like feeling hurt, but you like going there and feeling justified and thinking bad thoughts about the person who hurt you. That doesn't make what they did right. Absolutely not. But our response to that can be one of love and forgiveness. Or it can be one of spiritual blindness. Take the blinders off and see what God wants to do with that moment. Maybe it is an area with your children and you don't keep the blinders on. You keep the blinders on. I don't know who this is for. You keep the blinders on at your kids' sports games. Because you don't want to see that through faith. You want to see that through, they better do good because they're going to get a scholarship and their employee in the NBA is going to pay for my retirement plan. They better do good because how good they do defines me. And maybe you're speaking that into your kids. And it's time to remove those blinders. Start supporting the kid God gave you. Because God knows better than you do. That's for somebody in this room. Maybe it's time to stop looking at your spouse through the lens of your parent. That's for somebody else in this room. Maybe it's time to start seeing everybody as just somebody who needs grace. Somebody who needs love. Somebody like, we need to be like Jesus. Take the spiritual blinders off and begin to see as he sees. As he sees. 
That's why he stopped from the moment and talked to this guy. When he's got a whole crowd of Galileans over here cheering him on, and he stops and talks to this guy to spur his faith on, to see his faith progression from hearing to believing to knowing. Maybe that's where we need to be. Remove the spiritual blinders from every different area of our hearts and see as he sees. Because our time here is limited. No matter how old you are, you're running out of time in this world. And the influence you can have on pointing people to Jesus is running short. No matter, Sally, we were talking about that this morning. Time just gets faster and faster. Two weeks ago, a friend of mine died. His son found him at the bottom of the attic stairs. They don't really know what happened. He's just dead. We never know. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 30 years from now. But it's coming. We will live on if you know Jesus in heaven. We had a whole heaven series a few months ago. We, we can talk about that if you have questions. We can talk about that, but... Your time is right now to do everything you possibly can for Jesus in faith. And how do you want to spend that time? Bitter and angry and blind? Or eyes full open in love and grace in how you walk around this world? Let's live for Jesus together, seeing the world as he does.